When the bells all ring and the horns all blow And the couples we know are fondly kissing Will I be with you or will I be among the missing? Maybe it's much too early in the game Oh, but I thought I'd ask you just the same What are you doing New Year's New Year's Wonder whose arms will hold you good and tight Exactly twelve o'clock that night, welcoming in the new year, new year's year. Hello and welcome to episode twelve of the debrief. I am your host, Brianna Joy Gray, coming to you on New Year's Eve. Just hours before 2022, I hope we're all a little bit past the idea that a new year is going to manifestly change our realities, material or otherwise, but it's still nice to think and hope and reflect on the things learned over the past 365 days. I just wanted to touch base with you quickly this evening to talk about, as always, the most recent episode of Bad Faith Podcast. This was a two-hour banger about one of my favorite subjects, student debt cancellation, and whether or not now is the moment for a student debt strike. But also, I wanted to open the floor up to any number of topics that might be on your mind, especially on a night as contemplative in nature as this one. As always, feel free to get in the queue and start uh, queuing up questions for the evening, but I'm going to start us off with a clip from the most recent episode so we can all orient ourselves as to the topic of conversation. Here is a clip that I just posted to social media that hasn't been heard by you guys before in all likelihood. So we'll start with that, get in line, and I look forward to hearing about what's on your mind. It really does feel from where I'm sitting that the thing that moved the needle was the looming midterms and the realization that this issue is strict, you know, going straight to the heart of the core Democratic Party voters. Disproportionately, five voters have student debt. You know, you want to talk about these people are, are elites, blah, blah, blah. But Democrats love to brag about how they disproportionately get college graduates. And these are the same people with student loan debts. And so they're really just like beaten up on the base here. And I feel like the response has been to the idea that some of their core voting constituency might sit this one out because they're so pissed off and offended by what's going on. And the data says that, you know, there's a, a survey of black voters that said 40 percent would seriously consider not voting if student debt cancellation wasn't delivered mm. on. I also want to highlight, you said something really important. People often remember that Joe Biden said he you know, promised to cancel an immediate minimum of $10,000. As you pointed out, he also promised to cancel all undergraduate student debt for people into public schools and HBCUs, and HBCUs. private and public 
And yep. it's means tested in this stupid way. Again, mean <laughs> means testing is mean. It's this arbitrary $125,000, not $400,000 income cutoff. But I think people, you know, we also can't forget that. And if a, the constituency of people who would get relief from that HBCU promise, from that public university promise, were like, we are not letting this go because you actually can deliver on this and it, you can't blame Manchin <laughs> for right. being thwarted. Like people need to make their voices heard in addition to engaging in a strategic non-payment, engaging in debt strike, if that's what they want to do, there just also has to be active public pressure. And, you know, I think economic disobedience and civil disobedience, right? I mean, people, this is our, this is our chance. We have the most leverage we're going to have on this issue. And like these five months are critical. And that's why I really implore people, tweet, tweet, tweet about it, but also come to these strategy meetings and, Think about it. Get motivated by the side of like what your life would be like right. if you didn't have to pay, make these payments. Well, I, I, I think that this is a real testament to this idea of I'm sorry to say it and I'm not asking anybody to co-sign me, but, but vote withholding. This is not an organized vote withholding effort here, but there are enough people who are angry enough. The Democratic Party obviously feels like some of these voters are not going to come through. Dependable a Part of the dependable vote, voter base isn't going to go through. And I'd be very curious to see what would happen if there were a an organized group of people you know, that could say, I can deliver the way that unions used to. I, I can. I have the ability to deliver these registered voters to the polls if you fulfill these conditions. And student debt is obviously one that mobilizes people. All right. Once again, that is from the latest episode of Bad Faith Podcast, free wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch lengthy clips on YouTube and subscribers can watch the entire two hours uncut, unfiltered at patreon.com slash badfaithpodcast. I see some people already have thoughts, feelings, and questions. I know that I had a lot of thoughts myself after recording this episode, so I'm interested to hear from you. Friend of the stream, Jehan, how are you doing? I'm good, Bree. How are you? I'm doing very well this New Year's Eve. Do you have any plans? Happy Happy New Year's. Um, Do I have any plans? I'm just going to go over to my sister's again. I made some um, donuts and Hmm. some other stuff and black eyed peas, of course, and all that stuff. Of course. You say, of course. I mentioned to, you know, my, you know, friend who I'm spending this evening with that, you know, we have to cook black eyed peas. And he looked at me like I had three heads. (laughs) I was like, I don't understand. Like, how are you going to guarantee money and prosperity in the coming year if we don't make black eyed peas and greens? And and he was just like, so we're we're crossing those um, cultural differences now. (laughs) But I'm glad to hear you're on the case. What what's on your mind this evening? Otherwise, (sighs) so I I really listened to this episode and I really appreciate your line of questioning around the debt strike. And I am so sad to say that I to a certain extent, and please, people don't attack me, I'm sorry, but some of it just sounds a little bit like magical thinking. Mm. I just, I'm, I'm scared. I Look, I got loans, and, I, and as a matter of fact, I got, y'all were talking about Corinthians College. I got loans from Corinthians College. I told mm. you about my massage therapist uh, mm-hmm. career. So, but I mean, you know, there are some sayings, you know, the leverage is the mass of people, but I, I'm kind of like thinking back on like Occupy Wall Street, mm-hmm. um, because from what I've seen, they swept the tents out and business continued as usual. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I don't know, do the Democrats even care enough about losing midterms or even being elected again in any capacity to take, you know, this action seriously in the end? And I just haven't seen any evidence whatsoever that there are any political consequences for anyone at any time ever. 
<laughs> I mean, I, I definitely hear that frustration and I think it's a really good question, you know, and I don't know that we'll ever be able to answer that question and then kind of reformulate unless we at least try to see if we can land one time a reframing of a democratic loss that genuinely is received as being the fault of the party itself, as opposed to, you know, uh, selfish voters, Bernie bros, that kind of thing. Right. Uh, I don't know if I've ever experienced, and maybe this is naive and maybe it it won't work. Like I, I don't know, but I have never experienced, I can't ever recall a time when a Democrat lost and it was perceived as, oh, they could have won if they just did this thing that was easily within their power and control. And they chose not to, such that mm-hmm. the responsibility for the loss is squarely on the shoulders of the Democratic Party in a way that could potentially provoke more substantive reform and, de- you know, frankly, the death of a, of a party, at least as it, as it currently exists. And mm-hmm. maybe, you know, we talk all the time about how it's, there's, there's only one party and you're not in it and it's just you know, plutocracy <laughs> and all of that stuff. And, you know, it's not entirely clear to me how much is, if, if it is, you know, they care, you know, that that's so true that they wouldn't even care truly if Democrats never won again. That that might be the case or it might be some something just short of that, which is they at least want to keep playing this two party shell game. So they will make enough concessions to at least maintain the status quo, in which case we could get something out of it. But I, I, I hear your skepticism. I hear it. Yeah, and it could be exactly what you just said. It might stop short of like, we don't care if there's one party and, and you're not in it. I, I, I do see that. <sighs> well, I, I will tell you what, Bree, I will be at that strategy meeting because mm. um, I need to hear all of it. Yes. And so for people who haven't listened to the episode and don't know what we're referring to, um, you know, I asked Asher Taylor, the co-founder of the Debt Collective, about whether there are plans for a student debt strike. Because what became apparent to me, and you guys know because we were talking about this on here, as the previous deadline was coming up, the February 1st deadline, it became clear that there wasn't anything, in, you know, there hadn't been a debt strike planned. And you guys were coming on here saying like, what are we going to do? Brianna playing a debt strike. And I was like, oh, <laughs> okay. Well, I'm getting, I'm caught a little off guard too, because I think a lot of us kind of assumed that, um, you know, the debt collective as a leading group in this area and which has had a lot of important um, successes in terms of getting this uh, moratorium pushed and has been a galvanizing force for a lot of us and a resource to help us better understand what our options are in this area. You know, it's an incredibly important organization. I think the presumption that they were going to do a debt strike probably kept a lot of other people from organizing one instead. And so I wanted to be really clear with her about what was being planned now that the date has been moved to May 1st, you know, okay, now we've got another five months to deal with this. What is the plan now? And it seems like at this point, they haven't committed to the idea of planning a debt strike. And there are some strategic reasons why they might legitimately not want to plan that. But given that there seems to be an appetite for one regardless, I think it's more important. It's important to know sooner rather than later for those who are interested in planning and striking anyway, or to Ash's point, for all of those people who are already striking because they're in non-payment, for them to be able to politicize themselves and see themselves as a, po- a political coalition by not ad- identifying them any- themselves any longer as people in non-payment and instead as people who are doing a debt strike who can add that to the mobilization that's being planned in the lead up to May 1st. Mm. Well. <laughs> so we'll so see. we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll see, but I, I'm interested to hear, I mean, like, 
what what you guys thought of that back and forth and what do you think of Astra's warnings about how, you know, a debt strike works differently than a labor strike insofar as the the harm done, you know, the the threat mm-hmm. is not lost work, you know, or the company's ability inability to earn a profit. Um, the government doesn't need our money. They don't need the money to stay afloat or anything. And most people are not, you know, nobody's in payment now. And a lot of people are not uh, in payment regardless because um, they can't pay. So the what what is the value of the strike? And we right. went back and forth about how we perceive the value of the strike a little differently. And, I, and I'm curious what your, all, all your guys' feedback is on that. Yeah, so am I, Brie. <laughs> but look, right. before I get up out of here, I just sure. wanted to um, offer you a heartfelt thank you for everything that you've done in um, this last year for, for all of us, all of us uh, 40 listeners. I'm sure they agree <laughs> with me. We love you, Brie. We will be here for you in the mm. new year. Um, and yeah, thank you. Well, thank you so much. I really do appreciate this forum and this opportunity to talk directly to all of you. You guys are really, you guys make it. So thank you. Thank you to you all and happy new year to you. Thanks, Bree. See you later. See you later. All right, Gregory. Happy new year. What's on your mind? You can unmute yourself by pressing. There we go. Hey, happy new year. Uh, You know, um, I I really enjoy your show and I'm always on the other side of things of you, but I do appreciate listening to your point of view and you're always, you know, great at how you present your points. But um, I think uh, from one point I look at it as is, so you're saying, okay, well, the student loan debt, there's two ways to look at this. One, if it's such a bad program, then why does the government continue to run the program mm. they should stop it agree yes they should stop it because they're just digging the hole we have to find a different solution than what we're doing obviously but you're going well i want this debt relieved on my student loan but then i look at myself and i go well then why can't i have that on my house or the next guy says well how come i can't have that on my car my buddy he just finished paying his wife's student loan off and he's pissed off because he's going i just paid her loan off and he goes but you know i've got this I would like paid off. So it's a tough situation when, you know, you're, I know I realize it's an, an insane amount of money that's owed right now, but there's still a massive amount of money owed by a lot of people for a whole lot of other reasons. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's hard to get behind one certain thing to say, this is, should be, you know, debt relief um, for this one purpose. Yeah. You thank you for that, saying? Gregory. So I think first and foremost, it's really important to remember that the reason that student debt is being focused on right now is because unlike other forms of debt, uh, relief for which I would support in many, many, many instances, principally medical debt. You know, I'm a huge advocate of medical uh, debt cancellation. Oh, I agree with you on that one. Um, unlike all of those other kinds of debt, this is one that it turns out can be done by Joe Biden by executive order because it is federal debt is debt that the federal government owns and has province over, right? So as much as I would love to be sitting here and advocating for various kind of consumer debt reform, um, um, reform, largely because so many people take out credit cards and consumer debts to pay off their <laughs> student loan debt. You know, I, I empathize with you, Gregory. I'm someone who has probably paid about uh, the principal. I, I've, I've paid about $160,000 so far personally. Right. And I'm out that money regardless. You know, there people could try to support a um uh like a what do you call it? Um back 
back, <laughs> uh, compensate people for what they've already paid. And frankly, I would, I would support those kinds of things as well. But again, that's not on the table. I'm someone who's out $160,000. You know, I'm, I'm someone who might end up having paid off all of her loans by the time a policy like this goes into effect. You know, I have another probably $50,000 to pay just because of interest, right? And, and interest payments. So I, 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 I want to be really clear that the reason why we're doing this and not other kinds of debt isn't because this debt is more deserving necessarily than other kinds of debt, but because Joe Biden has the power to do it. Another reason is because Joe Biden made this promise. So I did it. I interviewed Teslin Figaro, who's a commentator that goes on Fox News quite a bit and also on the Black News Channel and other places who had a relationship with the Bernie campaign in 2016, worked on the Black Outreach team. And I really encourage everybody to subscribe and listen to Monday's episode because she is terrific. And, um, you know, she was making the point, uh, sorry, I just lost my train of thought. Uh, we were talking about student loan debt and why we're doing just this. Oh, uh, making the point about, uh, the fact that she hates when people, it's one thing to lie. It's another thing to just to lie about something that nobody even asked you to lie about. Right. And her point is that Joe Biden, nobody, nobody told him to promise that he was going to cancel at least $10,000 of people's student debt immediately. That, that was his campaign promise. He came out of the blue and said, vote for me and I will cancel $10,000 of your student loan debt immediately. And I will also cancel all student loan debt for people who went to um, public universities who make under $125,000 a year and everybody who went to an HBCU, public or private. That was his promise. I didn't come up with that. I had a much better plan working with the Bernie administration, but that's what Joe Biden said. So the question is, whether or not he wants to fulfill his campaign promises so that people trust him and the Democratic Party enough to vote for them during a midterm year. And the third thing I would just say is that when you're talking about housing debt, part of the reason why there was a real push to help people in 2008 during the housing crisis, and again, so much some those funds were never distributed and didn't help home, homeowners the way they should have, and so it's not the greatest example because – Obama should have done a lot more to help homeowners. But ostensibly, there was a lot of public support behind doing so because the thought was homeowners had a bargain. There was a social contract where they invested in their homes. The whole country, the whole world tells you, you create, get equity in your home. You grow your value into your home. The way the middle class is built in America was through homeownership. And then because of the malfeasance of these bankers and basically gambling with other people's money, they caused all of these people to have a housing crisis and to go over and lose 40% of their collective wealth, 30, 30, 40% of their collective wealth. And it was a terrible crisis. And so we thought as a country, we should bail those people out. And I would argue that a similar contract existed between the society and students where we were told it's good for America for people to get an education. The way you succeed in this country and attain middle-class status is to get an education you should go to the best school that you can go to. You, the, the federal government says, in fact, we are going to back these loans and provide you federally backed loans so that you can go to college because that's how much the country is invested in you doing this. And there will be a return on the back end in terms of your wages and your ability to, ha to earn an income. In fact, the price of college outstripped dramatically the price in the, the growth in income so that we have people taking out loans for master's degrees that are required for the professions, important professions like social workers, nurses, teachers that cost tens of thousands of dollars so that they can earn 40, 50 or $60,000 a year. And so the bargain I would argue is also broken in that area. And just like we should bail out 
the homeowners who it was no not their fault at all that their houses went under the, that way in the housing crisis. We should bail out students who were lied to and misrepresented to about the value of these degrees that the federal government believed so strongly in that they backed. And I, I understand your point there, but I, I guess you do realize that as soon as they made the guaranteed student loan program, the cost of colleges then escalated at a rate that was never seen before. hundred so, percent. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, it always is driven by that. You create money, give it to people, and it forces prices to go up, just like we're seeing now with inflation. And so, um, there, I don't know if the college relieving. All I know is, who's ends up going to end up getting the money is going to be the banks. It seems like that's what happened with the home. You know, they bailed out the banks. They're going to bail out the banks again if they end up doing some kind of student loan situation it's it's still never going to be the people well the difference um, this time um gregory is that no there's no money that's being given to anybody this isn't this isn't the federal government printing money and giving it to banks to balance their balance sheets this is debt that's already held by the federal government so for example gregory if you owed me a hundred dollars and i say you know what happy new year never mind don't pay me back no money has to be created. No Venmos have to be, you know, opened, <laughs> you know, exactly. all that happens is I just forgive the debt. So it's a, it's a little bit of a different situation that pans out differently economically. And in the, in the episode, Frank, uh, sorry, I keep doing that, calling him Frankie. Sparky um, speaks really knowledgeably to this as a consumer debt um, advocate, an attorney who can speak more granular, granularly about this. And he's written about this a lot in magazines like Current Affairs. So I strongly encourage folks to follow him for the logistics of how this works um, financially. I would also say about that inflation point, um, I'm going to have a guest next week, an economist who is going to talk about the root causes of inflation and to what extent we should be concerned about government spending driving it. But one of the points that I've heard him make on a different podcast is that so much of the inflation that's happening right now is really based on these supply chain issues and not the influx into the economy. And it's COVID-related supply chain issues. And he also talks about the inflation in the 1970s, which looms large in a lot of people's minds. And talks about how that was driven by foreign policy and Middle East crisis and basically wanting to punish, you know, OPEC wanting to punish America for supporting Israel and driving up gas prices as a consequence. And it being, again, a supply chain issue, not this idea that we are spending too much and so supply goes up. And unfortunately, what often happens is certain bad faith actors on both sides of the aisle want to attribute, um, you know, they want to blame inflation on the things that they want, don't want to do for political reasons and never blame it on their political choices upstream, like bad trade agreements, you know, um, foreign policy choices, bad infrastructure choices that get us into the supply chain issues because they wanted to ship all these American jobs overseas instead of having more at-home manufacturing. And because they have these um, really tenuous supply chains because they don't want to pay for storage in America, right? That's part of what's going on here. They, no one wants to pay for goods to be stored. So they have these really um, sensitive supply chains that require everything to be constantly delivered so nothing stays and builds up and storage as backup. So all of those things, which are much more the province of you know, wealthy people and the government actors to control, they don't want to take responsibility. So they say, oh, it's your fault for getting too much money so you can take care of your children with this child tax credit after you've been unemployed for a year. Let's stop doing that. And it asks people to say, would you like milk to be... 10 cents more? Or do you want to give back the $10,000 it gave you to take care of your kids and presenting that as though it's any kind of a real choice for a family that's struggling? Gotcha. Okay. And the one last point I'd make when you're talking about your, uh, 
voting and your coalitions and stuff. Um, I, I, I really have to say, like, I live in California. It's very frustrating to me that every year California just goes for the Democrat for president. And it's, yeah. I think it's a terrible mistake. It doesn't matter what party you're in, because what happens is the no one has to come and make any promises to us and fulfill them because they know they're going to continue to vote Democratic in California, where there's other states who they can go back and forth. And so they go to those states, they make promises to them, mm-hmm. and then they'll receive way more than what they put in to the government. And so the, I think the same thing continues to happen with, you know, uh, I'm black people, they promise them everything and then they go and vote for them and then they don't fulfill the promises to you guys. Mm-hmm. And you keep doing this cycle over and over until finally you say, Hey, we're not going to vote for you. If you don't fulfill your promises, you're not going to reach it. Cause they're just taking it as we know we've got your vote because we know you're not going to vote for Republicans and you, and I'm not saying go vote for Republicans, but you have to do something else to force them to the table that they're going to actually deliver um, what they yeah, promise. I, I agree with nice. you. I agree with you, Gregory. And I think the analogy with black voters is apt. Now, you know, I, I like you, I wouldn't say necessarily go vote for Republicans, but it's part of why I think it's so important for there to be other third party alternatives in this country. I think it is very frustrating to be living in a solidly blue state. I mean, I, I, I live in D.C., but I previously lived in New York, you know, people gave me a lot of guff for voting for Jill Stein in New York in 2016, even though the state hasn't gone red since, I don't know, long before I was born, (laughs) you know, and is a state that is overwhelmingly blue and there's no actual electoral risk there. But even the symbolic, you know, it wasn't just symbolic for me, but even the idea of a symbolic vote for a Green Party candidate is really maligned because I think that both major parties understand the real threat that a third party challenge presents. I mean, in some ways, Donald Trump presented himself and ran as an outsider and people were very enthusiastic about someone who would ostensibly challenge the status quo, whether or not he actually did is a different story, but that's how he ran. And Bernie ran the same way and people were very excited about it for that reason. So I think it's clear that there's an appetite for candidates that demonstrate can can kind of um, voting for them can reflect the lack of satisfaction with the mainstream two parties and I agree to the only kind of way out of this, you know, whether it's Andrew Yang, whether it's Green Party, whether it's MPP, whether it's a kind of libertarian conservative. I don't know what it's going to be, but I encourage all those kinds of third party efforts for exactly that reason. So thank you, Gregory. All right. Happy New Year. And I'm just going to tell you, I think they did something to Bernie in Iowa. There was some kind of shenanigans that happened there. And I, I think the fix was in. Take care. Well, if you find out anything, Gregory, let me know. <laughs> All right. Have you on. We'll, we'll have the truther episode, the Iowa truther episode. <laughs> All right. Andy. Happy New Year, Andy. What's on your mind? Happy New Year, Brie. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Well, you know, um, I'm not exactly in the constituency of the folks who would want to organize a debt strike. I do sympathize with them heavily. Uh, I'm lucky enough to say that I well I don't know if I, I don't know if I would really call it lucky because it's coming out of my pocket but uh, for me my tuition is going to be like affordable enough to where I can pay it out of pocket mm. and may I ask what, about um, why that is so it's a it's a complicated story but if you'll indulge me I'll uh, so for me yeah I think I, I've said it before I'm a DACA recipient so mm-hmm. first off I uh, I am what you would call an Idaho um, what's it called, a non-resident uh, mm-hmm. student for tuition purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and so in in the state that I uh, that I'm going to school in, uh, DACA recipients are automatically put in that category. So uh, out of out of uh, out of state uh, residents uh, get charged, uh, you know, around three to five times more the regular tuition for in-state students. And the school that I'm going to happens to be one of three schools where tuition is considerably lower than the major state uh, universities. And for the, for the school that I'm going to, for in-state students, it's only $500 a semester. Mm. In my case, it's going to be $2,500. And because I had already started, um, I'd already done my first two years at a community college, I only have two more semesters to go for my bachelor's. So that's really only $10,000 over the course of two years that I have, you know, staring down. And obviously that's still like a lot of money, mm-hmm. but, you know, I just spend, you know, my gap year working and doing all this stuff for saving up. So in essence, that's how I'm basically going to be able to pay for my college. Now I have been thinking about wanting to get my master's and that's probably where the, where the student loan question is going that's to be. That's where it is. That's where it is. Cause look, I hear you. I, you know, I, took a gap year, I worked, and I made a lot of money. <laughs> I was lucky enough to get a very good job out of college, and I made a lot of money. And every, and I lived at home, and I saved, and I did everything that the world said I was supposed to do. I was a, a paralegal for a year in New York. And let me tell you, when I started law school, they look at your bank account and say, give me all of that. <laughs> <laughs> give me all of that, and here's a loan for the rest. If you save a lot, if you save a little, they're going to take everything in your bank account. And it really feels like it disincentivizes you from even working and saving anything. Because yeah. they just take that off the top of your loan and say, there yeah. you go. <laughs> you know, maybe I'm young and naive, but, you know, it's just right. I mean, right now I'm just kind of like, I, I, I feel like I have this together. Uh, I don't I don't know what, because I don't qualify for federal aid anyway. Mm. Obviously, um, it's, uh, if I have to take out a loan, it's either going to be through some private institution mm-hmm. or the school itself. Uh, I'll cross that bridge when I get there. Uh, what I wanted to talk about, though, mm-hmm. is I, I feel like it maybe it's conspiratorial in my in my thinking that I feel like largely in part why the administration doesn't want to forget forgive student loans is <laughs> is I think it's just also like this idea like going back to Reagan where it's beneficial to to the establishment, you know, cue the spooky music to keep Mm -hmm. people, you know, at a certain education level, Mm. you know? And I feel like this also ties into like this rising wave of like anti-intellectualism and, you know, lack of trust in institutions, not to sound like a lib or whatever, but, (laughs) (laughs) but I also want to tie that in. Like, did you see the the news with the new CDC guidance? And Oh, yes. Yeah. um, yeah, and it's just, and I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious now that the only reason they did that is because certain rich folks wanted that to happen. Mm-hmm. But, it, you know, it's, you know, we talk about so much uh, as people on the left about how we need to restore faith in our institutions and, you know, uh, give intellectuals their due and all this and that and the other. But then things like this happen with the CDC, and it's just like, well, I can see why people, are skeptical of the institutions at large and uh, you know, things like mm-hmm. the things like this happening, you know, certainly don't help. So mm-hmm. yeah, I wanted your thoughts on that. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's definitely, it, it's difficult to ignore the pivot from 
the discourse of previous generations where it was broadly understood that an, a well-educated workforce was a good thing for a country. It was patriotic. It meant that you could compete in the global arms race. You know, I don't mean like literally arms, but I mean, you know, in terms of GDP or what have you, you know, we celebrate right. the fact that we, you know, the brain drains don't affect us. People want to come here and get an education, best colleges in the world, all of that stuff. And suddenly it seems like that's not the case. I mean, the whole reason we have a free public primary education system is because of a national understanding, a cultural understanding of how important education was. And again, this is one of the things I laud Sparky for discussing at length and writing about is the history of the origin of our primary education system, because there was a time when the exact same kinds of arguments that were uh, that are going around about college were being discussed about high school. Well, do people really need to go to high school? And, you know, you know, why should why should Trump's kids get to go to public high school for free is a thing that a person could say if, you know, if this was a conversation happening 100 years ago. Um, so I do think that it is interesting and perhaps not benign that there has been this pivot away from people becoming increasingly educated and most importantly, for everyone to be able to access higher education at the same rate, regardless of whether or not they have the ability to afford to pay for it. Um, it seems, I mean, if you just really think about it on a really fundamental level, as long as college is not free, the people who get to go to college are always going to be the people who have more money in the bank, which is regressive and backward. Absolutely. Now to your, I, what I thought you were going to say though, was the idea that people want to maintain the student loan debt as a, as a mechanism, because along when people do get educated, the way that it works and to have a little bit more power, a little social mobility, a little bit of economic freedom, the way it works now is that you still are shackled to certain kinds of employers because you still have these loan debt obligations. And I was talking to a friend of mine from college who was uh, in town yesterday, and she was, you know, she she was in the, went to the Navy and was in the Navy for eight years so that she could pay for her Harvard College degree. And I would just like to put a point on this because sometimes. I know it's like the world's smallest violin for us, but there are there's a diversity of kind of students at, at these institutions. And so my friend you know, was in the Navy for eight years to pay for her college and talks a lot about how, you know, that was a constrained choice. She didn't like it. But then she got out and she went to professional school and the professional school landed her with a whole bunch of other student debt that she now has to pay for. And she ended up working for one of these consulting companies and quit and hated it and read a non-Girard artist's book, you know, and everything about it is true and had a crisis of self and left, but I couldn't for a lot, for a while because she had all the student loan debt and now she has a government job and still has that student loan debt. But at the end of the day, so many people feel like they have to do work that they don't respect that they know that is bad for the greater community. And the only way that people are shackled to the system is through their student loan debt. Fewer of us are homeowners, but we have student home loan debt. And if it's not student loans, it's home ownership or something else that keeps you from questioning the fundamental structure of our society. And I think that that is just as per pernicious or similarly pernicious in the way that a desire to keep you from having any education at all is. Absolutely. You know, uh, I didn't think, I didn't think to bring that up, but I absolutely uh, agree with that. Um, I think that's everything I wanted to touch base on, but I hope you have a happy new year, Brie. Thank you, Andy. I appreciate that. All right. I'm going to bring up Jonathan next. And I'm also going to say, I'm going to try to wrap at um, 
by 7.15 today because I have some New Year's plans <laughs> and got to move on to them. But I didn't want to miss out on today's recording because I know this was a, a big episode that people are going to have a lot of thoughts and feelings about. So if we can all try to keep it a little bit more brief, we can get through more of us. Um, but let's go to you, Jonathan. Hi, Bree. Uh, I'll, I'll make it super quick. I didn't have anything particularly substantive to talk about. I just wanted to wish you a happy new year and all the best in 2022. I think I speak for quite a few people when I say that the work you do is really valuable. I don't think that the political social media space is one where nuance or cooler heads tend to prevail. <laughs> so the fact that you're willing to um, talk to people you don't agree with, interrogate your own beliefs, and really uh, calmly steel man the opposing argument, I think is uh, very unique. So really looking forward to uh, continuing to be an avid listener of your podcast uh, next year and also really appreciate you decided to make a move on to call in because I think uh, everyone here listening certainly I think appreciates uh, the opportunity to converse directly with you it's really super cool thank you Jonathan that's that's really kind you guys are you guys are really lovely <laughs> this is such a lovely change of pace for certain from certain other kinds of social media I really do appreciate it Jonathan and I hope you have a happy happy new year you as well take care take care all right, Tucker, what's on your mind today? Just go ahead and, and yeah, there you go. Okay, sorry about that. Um, I have been thinking, like going through Sanders, uh, two primaries and all that stuff. And he kept saying, oh, we need a political revolution. We need to take over the Democratic Party. We need millions of people to get engaged in this. And it seems like people get stuck just at the primary process and uh that's not where we need to go as the progressive uh i don't know alliance hey tucker you're going in and out a little bit but, uh, i don't know if you're walking around and hey. they hey. threw for back in the early 1900s back when the Republican Party was a progressive party. So I really think that, that like progressives need to pretty much stop complaining to get engaged in their local Democratic Party because local Democratic Party elects state Democratic Party, which then goes on to elect members of the DNC, which goes on to pretty much make all the, the decisions of the Democratic Party. So I don't think we need to just sit as oh, we need to win primaries and all this stuff. We need to actually mm. get in our counties because that's how we actually take over the party. I mean, yeah, yeah. me, like, mm -hmm. I'm, a, I'm a Jill Stein supporter, mm -hmm. and I personally did that. Like, I did by my county party. Then I went to the state, and then I ran for chair. I got mm. four votes, which not <laughs> good in my opinion. I even had kind of like a dismissive article written about me in the newspaper. Mm. And even that way, like after that, I got elected to the committee, which you know that the executive committee pretty much makes all the decisions outside of the party officers. Hey, I think hey that Tucker, I. People need Tucker, to get Tucker, engaged I, in the. Yes. 
Yeah, I don't want to cut you off. You're going in and out a little bit, so I want to I want to just respond that and, and say that I think that you're right, and I would love to hear more when you have a better connection about what your personal experiences were there. I will completely cop to a certain amount of ignorance about what it looks like to do what you're describing and what people should know before they endeavor to do it in their own communities. So if you want to drop me a line in the comments, I would love to sideline with you about potentially talking to you or if you have any other suggestions for guests um, who have run for local office and can kind of talk about what they were able to change and why people should try that. I would love to do that. And I really appreciate you, you calling in. I hope wherever you're headed to sounds like you're moving at a robust clip is <laughs> someplace <laughs> safe and fun and i hope you have a really happy new year okay thank you you too all right all right brian how you doing buddy i'm good uh you know me when i see pop culture in the thing i want to talk about it <laughs> let's hear um, it um i actually this is more substantive than my last call although i just want <laughs> just want to say the see with Ethan and molly made me cry even though i hate lawrence and i don't support and it Jane was Lawrence. good. That was that was a scene. What, what I said, what I said to the person I was watching with when that aired was that this is really a really powerful emotive scene. This is really good acting. But the reason that it's so good is because they're not actually acting. They are two friends who have become very close over the course of the five or six seasons or whatever. And these are real tears, which makes for good television, but also kind of suggests that it's they could have have had better acting <laughs> Throughout, you know, what I mean? <laughs> like a world where they could actually act those tears and have had that kind of consistency throughout the season might have been nice. Yeah, well, that leads me to like my bigger point, which is mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw like the stuff on Twitter after Insecure or like in the past week, but there's been a lot of like um, debate and back and forth as to on one hand, people are like, yay, Issa changed the game. She's putting so many people on, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And then on the other hand, um, People are like, um, she grew up rich and she got access to like rich folks things. Like that's not game changing. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's kind of just a microcosm of like a lot of stuff we talk about. And I think mm-hmm. like I've been thinking about this a lot this week. And I think the central question, especially for us, like in the progressive left circle, is what do we do with the nine point nine percent? And I don't know if people know what the nine point nine percent is, but it's people that are not in the one percent, but um they haven't felt like the economic hardships um, during the years of income inequality as the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really complicated because it's the 9.9% is not a monolith. Mm-hmm. So I don't have any answers. I've just been processing this week and I wanted mm-hmm. to just like, um, I don't know, bring it up and talk to you about it. Yeah, that's so funny. I actually just reached out to Catherine Liu. I don't know if you know her. She's a professor uh, at a California school, maybe Berkeley who goes on Jacobin and Jacobin, I've heard her talk on Jacobin several times. Um, and she is very critical of the PMC and the way that you hear kind of Adolf Reed and uh, Pascal Robert um, critique the PMC. And I wanted to have her on because she was talking about that, you know, nine, nine ish percent. Um, and it seemed like she was very skeptical that there is much you can do with that group and I'm more on the fence. And obviously that could be because that's kind of my <laughs> people, <laughs> you know, those, those, that's who I've been liaising, you know, that's, that's my little petit bourgeois bubble and it is what it is. And, you know, I take what I think with a grain of salt as a consequence, cause I have my biases, but I see the ways that people in that, those groups 
resent not getting the bargain that they thought they were getting, which on one level, you know, like, screw you, you thought you were going to get, you know, you were going to win in capitalism and you're only mad because you're losing in capitalism. At the same time, there's an enormous amount of like power and privilege collected in there in terms of the fact that those are the people who are running our journalistic institutions. Those are the people who get to be the talking heads on the TV. Those are the people who represent themselves as the voice of black America, even if they're Don Lemon and in many ways that haven't had the same economic been in the same economic situation or representative economic situation in many, many years. And so there's a frustration there, but it's also a potential access to flip some folks that are in a position to be potentially really beneficial to a movement. And I'm not sure if I'm just speaking out of hopeful ignorance or if there's something there. And I reflect on, you know, May 68 and the extent to which these revolutionary moments in other countries have been sparked by students and other members of um, the petty bourgeois and whether we are missing an opportunity by not making efforts to capitalize on the fact that many people in those groups are as disgruntled as many people in the broader 99 for different kinds of reasons. And the social contract is so broken that even people in those groups are very upset. And I'm on the fence. I could be, I could be persuaded either way, but you know, I love a class trader. Yeah. And I agree. I'm kind of on your side because I, I need to see data. I'm just like guessing, but I feel like the 9.9%, they vote hardcore like all the Mm -hmm. time. So um, like not bothering with them. It kind of reminds me of when Bernie 2020 preemptively decided to not go hard in the paint with like voters over 65. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, you know how I feel about that. But yeah, I, yeah. I, I agree. But again, uh, let's hear what let's hear what Kathleen Lou has to say. I'm 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 happy to hear the pushback and I think it'll make for a really interesting episode. And if you have if you heard other people have this discussion and you think that would be interesting guests for the pod, I look, I don't really I self, you know, Ben is obviously the producer and he does an amazing job with the videos, but in terms of like producing content, that's just all me, baby. So I love <laughs> to get suggestions for guests, send me links, send me articles, send me videos so I can get a sense of what kind of speakers they are and if they're engaging talkers. And I will probably just put them on the pod. <laughs> I'm outsourcing my labor. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's <laughs> fine. You- <laughs> I'm more than happy to help a fellow Luther Vandross fan. Totally fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Brian. And let me know. Look, I might try to get a little insecure chat or a little like dedicated pop culture chat going because I feel like there was some saltiness from the crowd when we went on about Sex in the City for too long but then also the following week there were a bunch of a bunch of you all who were like okay I went and watched Sex in the City now I have thoughts and feelings so <laughs> I can't tell if I'm like scaring people away or if I'm just converting a bunch of people to trash television this is outreach this is how you get normies <laughs> like I'm a normie who like I, I've always been super liberal but like like I don't talk to my friends like about Bernie all the time. Like, that's just not how you build relationships. Right. So I think that, like, having a balance is totally fine. But right. I want to keep it brief and just say Happy New Year, and I can't wait for more Bad Faith in 2022. Thank you so much, Brian. Happy New Year. I appreciate you. No problem. Take care. Take care. All right, Reed's up next, and I'm going to call this at day is going to be the last um, caller. Uh, welcome, Spencer. How have you been? Hey, Brianna. How have you me? I can hear you're a little bit glitchy, but keep talking and we'll see if we clear up. Do this. Is that any better? Ooh. Oh, that's much better. Okay, wonderful. Uh, I'm excited about that Tessa and Figaro episode. I saw her Fox News appearance recently, and that was that was awesome. 
right? She is, I have never seen someone deliver body blows like she does on the air. <laughs> I, I aspire <laughs> to that level. So yeah, it's a good episode. I look forward, I'm looking forward to you guys hearing it. What's yeah. on your mind? Uh, well, regarding really quickly what Brian said, I saw both uh, Q, formerly known as Andre, mm-hmm. uh, and Trevor making uh, talking about Insecure on the timeline. So mm-hmm. if, you, if you're looking for a panel, those might be good folks to reach out to. Let me ask you guys this, because I obviously love I don't watch Q. Insecure. Heads up. Oh, okay. No, this is, this is more of a, a production question. I okay. love Q. I love T, Trevor. I love... Um, you know, Leslie and Katie and, you know, all of these people. And I'm curious how much, cause I, I feel a lot of pressure to like not always have the same people, but also like, it would be very easy for me to go and bring people in who I know have good takes, who have interesting takes, who are dynamic, who I have relationships with. And so I, I feel this push and pull and it's like, am I allowed to just keep bringing back like Leslie and T every time I want to talk about pop culture or should I force myself to be diversifying the pal- like, do you guys get mad when like once a month it's the same people that you just heard last month? <laughs> Look, I, I can't speak for the listenership and I might be the wrong person to answer this question. I have kind of a hyper-focused sort of brain where if I like one person's perspectives, I will like yours or, or cues, I will tend to go and then seek out their other work and just consume as much of it as I can. So personally, mm-hmm. I'm I'm very happy for those repeat guests because I know those people and I like their perspectives. Okay, I saw um, a little thumbs up fly when you said that. So, okay, maybe I should be less insecure about, <laughs> lol, insecure <laughs> about um, having these kinds of repeat guests. Yeah, and, and that, that, that's my quick opinion on that. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I have two other things, so I'll mm-hmm. just move quickly. I wanted to say regarding Tucker's suggestion, I know we didn't get to hear all of it because of his connection. Uh, but one thing that I kind of balked at was stop complaining and get involved. Look, mm-hmm. I'm I'm all for getting involved, but keep complaining. Uh, mm-hmm. Go along to get along, in my opinion, is a death sentence. And if mm-hmm. you're not drawing clear political lines, even if you do choose to run the Democratic Party ticket, which um, look, I can't say that's what I would want to do, but I'm not going to tell the people they shouldn't do it. Why not try to take it over from the inside? Uh, keep complaining. Like, I, And if you don't draw those clear political lines, I think the inside culture is going to change you far before you change it. And uh, as much as they've done some lovely things, the squad is living proof of that. In my opinion. Yeah. I mean, I do think, and I'm not saying this is what Trevor intended, but there is a kind of rhetoric that says, you know, stop complaining, you know, shit or get off the pot, stop complaining, you know, get, get involved and stop complaining. Um, we've got to have a meaning about it for, you know, there's, there's certain kinds of things which may be true, but also is exactly what an op would say. <laughs> you know, it's the kind of thing that can neutralize important energy that can distract from the potential power of people being mad and energized around a certain event. And, you know, this came out a little bit with um, Asher Taylor in our discussion. And I am sensitive to the fact that I am not an organizer and, you know, I understand that her burdens are not my burdens, but also it can feel a little bit like when there's organic energy in a moment, whether it's around George Floyd or whether it's around the student debt stuff, it's our job to figure out how to capitalize on it. Like everything isn't a plan. Everything is, you know, that energy, that anger, that complaining, that's part of the process as well. And sometimes you have to figure out how to harness that energy and not just be mad that you didn't, not, I'm not saying this is what Astra was saying at all, but you can't just be mad that you didn't create that energy and be like, well, that's not the plan. You know, I mean, plans change. And like, this is an opportunity that's being dealt up. People are hopping mad. 
And there's sometimes I can, I feel like people say, well, this isn't the way you do things. And all the organizers that sometimes say like, don't you force the vote. You have to do organizing. And it's like, okay, but both like having a moment like this that clarifies where people stand can be useful to your organizing effort. And when people say things like organizing or run for office without the kind of details that people need to know how to act. And that's why I said to him, you know, come back, tell me exactly what your experiences are. And let's talk specifically about what people should do, because there are way there's a way in which people talking very generally about what they think needs to be do the official signed off upon way is just a way to deflate all of that energy and prevent anything at all from happening. Because most people aren't sorry, aren't going to go and run for office. They're living their entire lives and trying to keep their head above water. So I, I'm with you and I agree. And that wasn't to cast aspersions against anyone in particular, but just to explain why I have the approach that I have. And sometimes I'm like, okay, like I'm not like, I agree, like we're going to organize, but like, I need you to be more specific just to make double, triple sure, you know, you're not an op. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, I don't mean to cast any aspersions on Tucker or Astra or anyone either. I, I, I think that people folks like Astra, you know, from, from whatever work I've seen come to this stuff in complete good faith. Absolutely. Uh, and that's actually kind of, that was my last point. So I, I appreciate you drawing that connection. Uh, my, my observation of that back and forth near the end of the episode was that it was mostly a comms disagreement. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, as you well know, it's what kind of what you run into all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in my opinion, it's, it's kind of reflective of a more general inside outside problem that lefty organizing has where mm. we can say all day, you know, do the organizing. Uh, you know, I, I listen to this as revolution podcast, as I've mentioned in the past, it's the point Pascal hits all the time. We need to, we need to organize. We need to mobilize people. We need to do political education. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 100%. I agree. However, it seems to me that there's also an obvious way in which, uh, the thing that you just said is true, Mm -hmm. which is that once, when that energy is organically there, we should be able to lean into it to, to use a term to capitalize on it. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. And and there is a way that I think from the outs, from from the inside, saying what, uh, Astro said on that episode makes a lot of sense to me. I've kind of been uh, involved and adjacent to left liberal political spaces my whole life. Mm. And I understand from that perspective, the instinct to say that like well let's be very very clear about this it's not so simple mm-hmm. you know like this is this is part of a larger strategy mm-hmm. as as both she and sparky kept repeating and mm-hmm. ag- agreed 100 mm-hmm. percent however to that is not how most people i'm aware that my nerdy interest in this stuff is the exception to the rule like you said most people are not running for office most mm-hmm. people are not spending their free time and energy investigating this stuff and seriously mm-hmm. trying to parse the specifics so there is a way in which saying no we're doing a student debt strike and are you already not paying? Guess what? You're involved in the student death strike. Mm-hmm. Here's what that means. Like, mm-hmm. it kind of accomplishes the same thing, but it's so much more clear to your mm-hmm. average person. And and I don't I don't think that they're trying to exclude those people by any mm-hmm. means. I think they're trying to be cautious and all of the reasons, like mm-hmm. you said, being an organizer has different jo- uh, uh, has a different job. So yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously I have a lot of thoughts there, but that's the general. No, the I general appreciate gist. that, Spencer. And to your point about insider outsider, I also also clarify. I was trying to just clarify. It's really okay. I mean. They don't need my permission, but you know, I wouldn't be disgruntled if it came, if it came out that, you know, student debt strike had the meeting, evaluated it and decided they didn't want to do a student debt strike. Sorry, if the debt collective decided they didn't want to do a student debt strike, that's fine. But what I perceived, what I experienced leading up to this, what was going to be the date, the February 1st date was a lot of people who presumed that somebody was on that particular case. 
And if they want to do a different kind of strategy, whether it's an inside outside strategy or whatever, I think it needs to be clear that they're not going to occupy that outside lane. So an actual, you know, an outsider, someone who isn't as invested in the inside game can go ahead and do it because I think they work best in tandem. And somebody should be making a different kind of threat, even if it's not the kind of threat that the organization in its wisdom and its different goals doesn't want to make, you know. So it wasn't that I was even wanting them to say we're going to do a debt strike. It's that it's okay. If you're not going to do it, just be clear because there's some people who want a debt strike and they should start planning now if you're not going to do it. And I mean, in in reality, like it seems like in practical terms, they're not even against the notion. They were Mm -hmm. just trying to be clear about what that does and doesn't do. Like, for example, it's it's not the same as a labor strike in terms of Mm -hmm. they don't need our money. It's Mm -hmm. more about political and social and economic control. But I, I think there is, I don't know, I, I, look, I, don't, I don't blame you or anybody else or Astra or anybody else for having a hard time parsing it because I think it's a really, really fine line to walk between comms and getting people excited and involved, mm-hmm. but also being clear about what you are and are not proposing so that you do not appear unserious or so you're mm-hmm. not biting off more that you can chew. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you for that, Spencer. And thank you for your production note. You told me that my volume was down <laughs> too low last time and I've tried to rectify that. How do I sound it today? It seems better to me. I, I didn't even notice this time. So that seems like a, a good sign. I appreciate it, Brianna, as always. Happy New Year. And to you, Katie, as well. I saw I saw Katie Halper up there in the speakers. That's right. I'm inviting Katie Halper. I'm sorry. We had a little technical back and forth. I didn't send her the link. She was supposed to be here the whole time, but I'm glad <laughs> to have her for the last 15 minutes. <laughs> Hi. How are you doing, KT Helps? Good. You, Bree Bree, Joy? I'm doing very well. Uh, what are your New Year's plans like tonight? Oh, family time. Parents, dogs, out of the city, you know, bucolic. <laughs> you know, I think a lot of people, COVID aside, find New Year's to be a stressful holiday because it, it kind of has maximum expectations and minimal, like, follow through. Right. right. It's, it's supposed to be extremely glamorous, right? <laughs> very dressed up, a big party, spend a lot of money. And also it's extremely cold. Nobody has any money. Now there's a virus. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's a relief. It's so, it's usually anticlimactic, but it's not really because there's nothing that you can expect. That sounded really dark, but I'm actually <laughs> from a position of relative ease and um, acceptance. But well, yeah, you're good. talking a lot of money. You're not going to hope that it's going to be, you know, an amazing party and be disappointed. You're just, you know, acceptance, radical acceptance, as Tara Brock writes about. I love that. I also was reflecting, Katie, on the fact that the last time I had a really good New Year's, I was with you. Oh, yeah. When I invited like 100,000 people to your house. You invited 100,000 people to my apartment in New York. I mean, we went out. (laughs) That was your last uh, New Year's Eve living in New York, right? It was my last hurrah. I, I anticipated that I was not going to be in that apartment much longer because I had been working for the intercept for like eight months and couldn't really afford to live there. Like I, you know, it was the place I had been living as a lawyer and I was living beyond my means to have taken the job at the intercept and I needed to get out of there. And I used to throw a lot of parties because my apartment was very centrally located. And even though it was like, okay, it's like Katie, it's like great to New Yorkers, but anybody else would have thought it was a a hovel. No, it wasn't great, great as in grand, as in big physically, but it was an amazing apartment. It's a solid 350 square feet of fun. <laughs> a great, great bedroom, great space for dancing. Yeah. Yeah. I have down, I believe, an Instagram of you. Um, like, well, I don't know. Can I say this now that you're not working for the Sanders campaign anymore? Look, I very appropriately was singing and dancing to the great Whitney Houston. Yeah, you were. 
and you fell down on your couch. Very, I didn't, I didn't fall. Good. I dropped to my you knees dropped. elegantly. Elegantly. And then you rose up like, like a, the phoenix. Like a phoenix. Yeah. Thank was, you. Yeah. It was a great moment. <laughs> it actually was like the best metaphor for a Bernie uh, staffer taking yeah. on adversity. <laughs> yeah. And when I say Katie invited like every New Yorker to my life, at, at this point in my life, so many of my friends had left the city, had had kids. Like my party, my party potential was dwindling. And yeah. then Katie like reignited the flame of my hosting potential by, but I feel like, I feel like Sean McElway was there, Katie. Oh yeah, he was. Yeah. I feel like, um, Adam Gaffney was yeah. there. Yeah. Adam, and I didn't like know these people very well at the time. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I still don't know Sean McElway, but like, I, I, I did not know anybody at this party, Katie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there was friend. a baby. Who's ba- oh, who was there? Was baby. My friend, uh, my friend, Sean and his baby. Then Greg Goldberg came. Shout out to Greg uh, of the sissy pop band, the ballet. At yeah, I don't even, I don't even, I don't even know. But I, I will say the theme of the party was party like the 1% while I can still afford my rent, which yeah, didn't fun. last very long. And then I joined the campaign and left New York and that was that but I appreciate you for those last memories Katie before we take these last few callers and I invite the callers to ask questions to Katie as well do you have any resolutions I'm going to learn how to drive oh you're a fellow non-driver it's really inexcusable though at this stage of my life are you going to do learn to drive a stick or just oh no oh gosh no oh god no (laughs) no well, who's going to teach you? Uh, unclear. I mean, because driver's ed classes now, well, that would be a great like 80s movie if I went to driver's ed classes. But I think um, things are shut down because of Omicron. So mm. I've been driving around in a library parking lot. I did mm. pretty well, better than I expected. Definitely better than my mom expected. But I mm. think I need a family friend or a friend to show me how to drive, not my mom. Because it's just too close. There's too much tension. It's too close, but I was actually really surprised. I thought we'd be like frantic and screeching. I screech and my mom screeches. Not regularly, <laughs> but both of us. Went Not even scary to most people, but scary to us. Like something startling happens. We both shriek. But we were on good shriek behavior for some reason. So I am also a non-driver. I have not even sat behind the wheel except for one time. It was probably about 2012. I was maybe like 20, 26-ish. And I was home for the holidays and my mother is like, get in the car. It was like probably Christmas day. She says, get in the car. We're, I'm going to teach you how to drive. Wow. So we drive up. My, my mother lives just above the Bronx in lower Westchester. And we drive up to, um, uh, uh, what do you call it? Ocean, um, sorry, or Orchard Beach, Orchard Beach, which Orchard is like a beach in the Bronx. Yeah. My mom used to go to the child. And there's a, there's a big parking lot that's super empty because it was the dead of winter, right? It's a beach parking lot. Who's there? Except the only people who were there were like five or six other teenagers. Learning how to drive. People, you know, 10 years younger than me who were learning, learning how to drive with their parents. And so it was like all these kids and their parents. My mom just told how to drive there. She just passed through. Nora Eisenberg learned how to drive in Orchard Beach. See, everybody's doing it. And I'm not surprised because there was a big sign posted that said, do not teach people how Uh, to drive here. You know, taboos are only taboos because they're things that happen. <laughs> or they have to articulate them, right? Is, is that is, is this what Freud says, Katie? Yeah, well, Freud and anthropologists. Yeah. Okay. Well, taboo it was. So I, my corny self starts driving. I'm feeling good about it. The dogs in the back seat were rocking and rolling, and I see a a parks vehicle on the other side of the parking lot. It's a huge parking lot, right? So right. what I should have done was just driven to the other side, 
switch seats real fast with my mother and like carried on. But yeah. because I am a uh, Pollyanna and mm. the world's biggest goody two shoes. And I have this weird uh, fear of authority issue where if a bus driver is like, you put your Metro card in the wrong way. I basically break into tears. Right. I, I like pull over preemptively oh, no. as he's pulling over a different car. She sees me pull over and then weighs me over. And of course I stop and my mom gets ticketed because I didn't have a permit. No. And yeah. Oh my God. Was your mom kidding you or was she understood? No, I mean, it was her idea. And, you know, right. she, she wasn't mad at all. She was like, oh, well, we tried and we went right. out our way. But um, I have never tried to drive again and I don't oh, plan on it. Driving. Yeah. I have, I have a bit of a, like, I, I mean, I didn't have any bad experiences, but the type of thing that the older you get, the longer you've gone without it, the more terrorizing it becomes. I believe that. I mean, I, I find cars to be very scary. I I am a little bit of a scary passenger. Yeah. I try not to flinch and grab the door and do all the things because right. I think that's going to make the driver even more reckless. Yeah. But I think it's insane that everybody whizzes by each other on the highway the way they do. I hear people joking about drinking and, oh, I'm no, fine. I'm good enough. Yeah. And like, I don't care for any of it. No, we are. We have a we have a joint ticket anti drunk driving policy on this I, show. I, I, I Amen. Preach, Amen. Katie. Yeah. All right. So maybe let's let's go ahead and hear what Reed has to say. And if you guys also want to help me make this a little New Year's theme, ask, talk about resolutions or ask any questions you have about um, how to execute them in the new year. Yeah. I'm happy to answer those too. All right. Reed, what's on your mind? Well, first of all, I'm losing it because two of my favorite people just came on out of nowhere. <laughs> I wasn't prepared. My God, help me. I love you both. Yeah, I watch you both incessantly. And thank you. Thank you. Anyway, so quickly, I just want to dive in. I'll be very quick so I make time for Day, who I love as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But I want to talk about just the the reframing of how we frame this debt collective, because I'm a part of this group that was raising money for the debt collective. Mm -hmm. And, like, no one got involved. And Mm -hmm. I was like, wait, why aren't people involved in this? Like, what is it that we're not doing? We're not communicating a certain message where they're saying like, yes, this is important. And normally, you know, with other things they're very on board with, but like this one didn't make it. And I just, anyway, we don't have to have a long so, conversation wait, so, about so it. Tell me, tell me more. I, but Rita, I want to know, like, so you're saying that you were trying to raise money for the debt collective and you were, your goal was what? To get more people signed up? Get more people to just give money to the debt collective around this protest. And, and what was the purpose? Uncle- what was the stated purpose of the money? What was the ask? The ask was to support because they had a specific ask around the protest that's coming up. So and to fund the protest yeah, or, okay. Yes, exactly. Interesting. So I think if it were me, I like, here's the thing. What I keep asking, and I don't know if other people are like me and Katie, tell me how this resonates with you. When I hear people talk about union power and all of this, what gets me really jazzed is the idea that we could give to a strike fund, support these workers who are withholding their labor in a way that's going to ultimately, you know, benefit me as someone who's an, you know, an independent practitioner who can't strike. Like I look at these people and I'm like, oh, how can I give you money right. so that you can make your strike go longer and survive? And when I think about the debt strike, what I wanted to get to with Astro and we got a little derailed was, you know, okay, I wanted Sparky to say, here are the negative consequences that could accrue if you did go on strike. Your balance could be, you know, they can put remittances on your social security check and all this stuff, your paycheck and stuff. And how can we support people 
who are suffering the negative consequences so right. that we can, we can show one our solidarity. Those of us who have paid off our student debt or who never had student debt or whatever, how can we show solidarity? And also how can we mitigate the kind of ethical unease of being someone who isn't assuming the risk, but is asking people to take the stand for a broader political project. And so that's the kind of thing I want to give money for. And if we're talking about, as I did with Tesla in this upcoming episode, withholding our dollars from candidates and instead putting it somewhere else, I would love to put it in something like that. But the abstract idea of I'm giving money for a protest and what are we protesting and what's the outcome? Right. What's this going to? What's, how is this going to work? To me, that doesn't, it doesn't necessarily drive me to want to contribute in the same way. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I mean... Yeah, I think it has to be, you have to have some kind of exciting ask, right? So I feel like it's, if you're paying something off, and I don't know, I'm not an organizer, as I'm sure an organizer would be very quick to point out. Um, (laughs) But I do think that there is a moment, and that the moment needs to be taken advantage of. Um, I don't think it is being taken advantage of. I haven't thought as much about what the fundraising approach to it should be, but... I don't know. I think that that if you articulated it the way that you just said, Bree, that could be good. Yeah. I mean, what do you think about that, Reed? Putting your money where your mouth is and not asking other people to take this risk that you're not sharing with. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. And I do feel that like there are certain fundraising elements that coincide with people that maybe aren't fundraising or just on board to like sign a petition or do whatever. Like those two sort of sort of do sort of share something in certain ways. I just feel like there's something about this that didn't seem like a priority. Mm. It didn't seem to resonate in a certain way. And I'm wondering if there's something that we need to do to like put it to the top of the list because I do. Yeah, Look to me. I know I have my biases about this issue. You guys all know how I feel about this issue, but I'm geeked out. Like when I did that video, student debt video for the campaign and it, and it went like viral I don't think that's an accident. I think it's because my sincere enthusiasm for this issue came out and people were like, yeah, baby, let's do this. And And I'm with you. I totally agree. Like, that's how I feel too. And I don't understand why there is not more like people being galvanized. Well, have you, have you seen a a single celebrity? And I know people get mad at me about the celebrity stuff, but I'm, I'm trying to use everything at my disposal. Have you seen, have you seen a a single, have you seen a single celebrity? Let's take Killer Mike, who I just talked about with Teslin. And again, sorry to keep referencing this episode that I recorded today. You'll hear it Monday. I just talked to Teslin about Killer Mike and the way that he, in her view, is one of the best advocates when we're talking about sending, spreading the progressive message to black communities. Okay. Killer Mike loves to talk about student debt, in particular to talk about trade school debt and how his kids went to trade school and how important that is as well. And I would love to see, in this context, someone like Killer Mike talking to people like Charlamagne the God or whomever else has these big platforms that reach a different kind of community than the left usually gets in touch with. And it's a community that Joe Biden feels beholden to in certain kind of ways, arguably in the way that he doesn't to Bernie voters and start talking about Joe Biden said he was going to cancel all this HBCU debt. Joe Biden should make cancel all this trade school debt. I'm killer Mike. I have these platforms. Let's do this. You know, someone like, I know this is irritating people, but Ariana Grande has like the bigger, biggest Instagram in America was a Bernie surrogate. In, in the world, it was a Bernie surrogate and like wasn't tweeting, like wasn't posting little cards about like, you know, Biden said he would cancel all student debt. Why won't he call your congressperson? And you know, he like, was in. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Being an activist. What was that, Katie? I'm sorry to cut you off. He was in Don't Look Up. So she's down to use her voice. Yes. Yes. Good point. Good point, Katie. You know, and so I just, I don't bring up celebrities because it's like they're the be all end all, but because it's just not. 
it's just evidence that all of these avenues aren't being used and people in these organizations have access to people like I know I am nobody and I feel like oh I can reach out to this person that person from the campaign you know I I'm a, I'm a, I'm a media I'm a left media figure Katie you know what do you think the likelihood is that if you me you know you me Crystal Marianne we could all decide to have like a, a student debt day of action leading That's at some point did. leading up to the the fifth yeah, uh, of May you know and I would love to get you know Young Turks and um, Majority Report, all of them in it too. Like we could have a blitz. Yeah. Blitzkrieg. But <laughs> Sorry, I can't help it. <laughs> but we need a demand. And to me, the we're going to have a meeting on the 26th. You know, I, meetings are important, but I think that people are likely to come around on a demand. And the fact that people are so geeked out about the idea of a debt strike is something we should not ignore. Yeah, and I think it's an, it has a lot of intergenerational appeal also because you have the people who owe the debt, then you have their parents mm-hmm. who don't want to their kids to have to pay the debt or they don't want to, have to help their kids pay the debt. Yeah, and people who have young kids who are looking down the barrel of having to <laughs> save $100,000 a year a kid for them to go to college Yeah, if, if the inflation keeps happening the way yeah, it does, the price it, inflation. Mm-hmm. You've discussed this before, but it fits very well. You don't have to be kind of a radical Marxist to think that student debt can be canceled, right? It fits the American dream mythology about putting your putting in the work and going to school and paying your dues and being able to have a better way of life. So I think that's another, you know, I'm sure I'm going to get canceled now for being a capitalist or something, but I just think that's another, another element of it that makes it that much more appealing and accessible. No, I think that's important. And Katie, to your point about being canceled, about being a capitalist, again, one of the things I loved about this interview with Teslin that's coming out on Monday is that She's like, look, a lot of black people, you know, are not have, don't have the same attitude toward capitalism as a lot of the left does. You know, the, you know, obviously there's black people on the left, but you know what she's trying to say that the that people like Killer Mike are very invested in entrepreneurship. That there's a relationship to entrepreneurship as a way to get away of some of the biased employment scenarios that black people have had to participate in, and to walk around saying capitalism bad. Like you have to just know your audience people and speak where they're to your at. audience yeah. exactly and i i you know some people are not going to like what she has to say either but i really think it's important you can sit here and be like i wish the base were different right. i wish you know the workers i'm trying to appeal to thought differently but that's a longer term project and in the shorter term you know i think she has some really important insights about how to meet people where mm-hmm. they are yeah um, but so, thank you, Reed. I'm not sure how helpful that is to you. No, so helpful. We're good. And happy new year, everyone. Happy thank new year, so Reed. Ciao. I like Reed's voice. Great voice. Yeah. It especially, it's got that, um, warmth to it. Warmth, commanding. It's great. The whole thing. <laughs> Start a podcast, Reed. Yeah. <laughs> All right, David, you're up. How are you feeling today? I'm doing good. I'm, I'm doing well. Happy New Year to the both of you. I'm actually excited to be here. Happy New Year. <laughs> so um, I have a couple uh, questions. I actually kind of have the same question for the both of you. Mm. Um, so from the episode, uh, uh, Astra kept pointing out the fact that um, the dead strike would be more effective if it was part of a greater movement. So to mm. try and condense all of my question down as simple as I can, <sighs> what do like how do people who are working 30 plus hours a week like you say trying to survive how do we create a galvanized movement like could we do a suite of episodes that actually kind of points out 
uh, um, ways that we can do things to keep people organized and actually kind of consolidate the left into something like what you see on the right with like Fox News or something that you see with the uh, neoliberals with MSNBC. Like, I know we can't, it'd be difficult to get people to that level. I mean, because that's corporate media, of course, but how do we consolidate? Because it seems like, it seems like the left has podcasts mm-hmm. and these these many groups these many followings like katie's following your following and they tend to overlap of course but it seems like the left has the podcast and the right has fox news mm-hmm. so my, i guess my question is how do we uh all get on the same page how what, how do we also get people involved to tucker's point from earlier how do we get people involved in such a way that they feel equipped enough to run for local office or to get involved in um, uh, ballot measures and things of that nature. Oh, you want to take that one first, Katie? Oh, my Lord. Let's see where to start. I mean, yes. Yeah, so there's a couple of things that uh, really good point, points that you made. Obviously, as you said, liberals have MSNBC. The right has Fox News. The left has podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, then you also brought, so that's kind of one issue. And then the other related issue that you brought up is how to get people to run for office. Is that correct? Am I correct? Well, how to get people to, to run for office, but also in things even smaller, even more granular things than that, like just getting people to be like, you know, I could go to my local city council and talk and listen and participate. Like, I, I feel like there's a lot of millennials, people who are 32 years old, people like me who are who are away from home because I left home to travel, to be a travel nurse, to make more money. And it's like, you feel kind of completely out of place. And it's like, I'm in this community now. I may be in another, another community later, but how do you get people plugged in enough to their own politics that they could go to a city council meeting and speak on a topic or, or be involved in what's going on enough that we could get everybody on the same page and, and, and even organize something like, you know, say force the vote and get that kind of uh, a movement going and keep that kind of momentum going to get that change happening. Um, well, now that you're mentioning it, I mean, I think something that we could do, uh, at least the leftists who podcast like you're, who you're describing, I mean, there could be more back and forth between us and the people who do that. Bree, what do you think? I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud about how to help make these, things sexier uh because for better or for worse i think people aren't very excited about local politics but yeah we can help make them more i don't know what can we do i i know that oftentimes if i'm not that excited about something it's because i just don't know very much like it's a it's an abstraction to me like economic like so much about um for example when i was in law school i never took labor law because I don't know, labor law, that sounds boring. That has nothing to do with me. It didn't even occur to me, right? Like no one explained that it was political. Like nobody explained, like it just sounded like I had no idea, right? And so ignorance sometimes leads to apathy in my own case. There, there, you know, people are like, why don't you talk more about foreign policy? It's because I don't know what I'm talking about and I need a hook, you know, like I need, I need something to get in there. Um, I need to, and then most people want to know how something affects them. Yeah, mm-hmm. And this is what we talk about in these editorial meetings at these papers as well. You know, it's this click driven online environment and you people places like The Intercept want to cover all of these meaty, you know, stories and they want to cover more foreign policy. And there's so much of the staff that is really, really interested in foreign policy, but there are competing demands. And so 
how the question is, how do you get people interested? How do you get people to understand why something that happened in Somalia matters to them? How do you get people to understand, um, you know, the relevance? And I think that sometimes people give up on that or even in the environment. Like, how do you get people to invest personally? And I think we'll give up. And I've heard people in meetings say things like, oh, well, no one clicks on the environmental stories. But it's like, no, you've never. It's so sexy and interesting. And there's all this study, all these studies about how there was like a conservative community in Louisiana that doesn't like it when you're like uh, global warming, but who was very responsive when you talk to them about how the fish supply is down and their local fishery businesses are going to be implicated and sea level rise means X, Y, and Z for their livelihood. And it's like, some of you guys are just not even trying Yeah. <laughs> when it comes to journalism. So I think the same is true here. And me personally, this is why I said this to Tucker earlier. I just want to know specifically what you did and what that would look like for me if I were interested in doing that. Like for instance, what are the salaries involved? What, what would that look like for me in my life? Is it something I could do on the side in additional to my nine to yeah, five? That's kind of one of the questions that has been in the back of my mind. Is it something that you could do like at a menial part-time level where you Mm -hmm. get off and and devote like maybe five hours of your day to Mm -hmm. just getting online or or going and and working on this one project that will actually contribute to the bigger momentum that we have? Um, To speak to what you mentioned just a second ago, what one thing that I am personally trying to do is like when I listen to one of your episodes or one of Katie's episodes and, and something strikes me, I tend to discuss it with my niece and nephew. And what I noticed that happened the other night was we were discussing um, uh, uh, being post-racial and the, the episode that you, you did, I can't remember what, uh, what his name was. Um, but uh, uh, Thomas Chatterson Williams. Yes. That's him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was, I kind of just poised the idea of, be that you have to be willing to see your own world radically different in such a way that you might not recognize it anymore if you're going to get this change that we want to have. Mm-hmm. And so to get to 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 try and get that to my nephew who's like 14, I had to liken it to basketball and I was like, so we know that there's this dichotomy between the WNBA and the NBA where the WNBA makes literally a fraction mm-hmm. of what the NBA players make and it got us into this really granular conversation about how you would fix that and I gave him this 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 broad fix. I said, well, just combine the two of them and then mm. you put the, the women on the men's team and balance it out. And it, the conversation just kept going. Mm. By the end of it, we he realized that his politics, that he agrees mm. that women should be paid equally what the NBA, the WNBA should be paid equally what the NBA should be paid. But the problem is trying to figure out how to do that. And mm. he actually came up with a bit of, uh, he took my idea and kind of ran with it. And so that's kind of the, mm. the thing that I'm trying to get to is like, how do we do that? every day in conversation with other people mm-hmm. yeah. well that's I think what you said is that's an, there's an important uh, point you bring up which is kind of the how the left can sometimes be a, a joy kill mm-hmm. and you have to be careful to not shame people or or because that's like the most unproductive thing to do but sometimes there's a you should be interested in this why aren't you interested in this mm-hmm. why do you care about things that are so shallow and um uh, inane and that's mm-hmm. really not what we need to be doing we want to reach people where they're at and we also want to try to make it like the burden is on us who are in media to make things that are not instantly interesting uh to make them interesting as mm-hmm. opposed to saying oh these people aren't interested in this stuff i think that's a, exactly right i also just want to say to you david 
But I, I had this idea for a movie the other day. <laughs> and anybody can feel free to run with it. And it involved, um, like, sorry, I, I obviously don't want this to anybody to be get COVID or whatever. But I was home over the holidays and my stepfather was talking about how many NBA players had COVID and were out. <laughs> And I was like, wouldn't it be kind of a fun premise for a, a lighthearted comedy if they so many NBA players were out for the season that they had to bring in WNBA players to fill in the role? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and they realized the league is more interesting and better when you have girls on the team. Enough. ABC family. To my nephew. That that was the, my whole point to my nephew. But that's a brilliant idea. I would love to. I would love to see that. All yeah. I want is an invitation to the premiere. <laughs> <laughs> so I can. So I'm gonna have my Met Gala moment, guys. Can I? Can I are live? You, are you Are you gonna wear a dress? Are you, <laughs> we'll 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 do a poll to say what what should be written on my dress. <laughs> I believe that there is a there is an, a, a perfect dress. There is a dress that can make everybody happy, and by everybody happy, I mean everybody unhappy. Right, that's the way to do it. That's democracy. <laughs> that's democracy. Thank you, David, so much, Thank and you. have a happy, happy New Year. You happy guys too. Happy New Year. All right, Day, you are our final caller. How are you doing, Day? I'm doing well, Brianna. How are both of you all doing? I'm good, thanks. Of course. What do you have for us today? Okay. What's on your mind? Well, yes, I, and I know it's already past 7.15 and you have you know people there, so I'm going to try to keep this quick because I want you to have your happy ending like Molly eventually <laughs> as well. <laughs> so, I appreciate you. <laughs> yes. Um, so it's funny. I did, if by the end you can answer one important question is where should we send you links and suggestions for content? Because mm. in my head, I'm constantly doing that to you. It just never makes it in a physical form. Mm. So I feel like if I have that, I'll actually do it. Um, but um, so I want to admit, as a person who has paid office student loans, mm-hmm. I want to say the reason I'm such an advocate for canceling is because it exposed how much of a scam it is, mm-hmm. the whole thing. Um, the idea that we're only focusing on how much student debt closes the racial gap instead of the idea of accruing debt for education mm-hmm. is a missed messaging opportunity, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And personally, I think it exposes the limitations of using racial messaging versus class messaging. Um, I do agree with you, though, in the episode, because I've only got to do I like to watch it in video form. So I've only listened to the first half of it. But I do agree strategically it was smart, as you highlighted in the episode, that at that moment in the campaign, um, because saying why you were only focused on the black student debt and not American debt may sound may like have left Bernie too exposed to like racist attacks if mm-hmm. he's not the right messenger, because mm-hmm. oftentimes I feel like we racialized things that if we actually put in an American context, it mm. would actually have broader appeal. But mm-hmm. getting to my more focused messaging question is I will say um, one nuanced take I have is about using the economic versus using the moral argument. Personally, I feel an argument that synthesizes both is necessary mm-hmm. because let's be honest, once money gets involved, society, we have decided that morality can kind of be divorced from our decision-making. But on a lighter but more serious note, if we just frame student debt as an infringement on your freedom, we would probably be good. Because if your society is designed in a way that you're rewarded for higher education, but then forced forces you into debt so that you're beholden to the capitalist class, i.e. having a job and not being an entrepreneur, et cetera, are you really free? Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to know what were your thoughts on kind of just broader messaging for that? Hmm. Day, I think you're fabulous. I think yeah. you're extremely insightful, and I agree with you entirely. <laughs> you are far too kind, but bless you. You are literally my my sensei, my teacher. I, 
Oh yeah, you bad faith was probably one of the best things to come out of twenty twenty one for me. As long as as well as you, Katie, because I subscribe oh. to your Patreon as well. Both of y'all are thank pretty amazing. So thank you. Yeah. Katie, for background, Dave Day called in to the last show and we were chatting it up probably for thirty minutes because wow. I just appreciated everything that he had to say so much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think, Go ahead, Katie. Yeah, no, just from I mean, I I didn't hear that last one, but I heard just from what you were saying, there's so much in there. I, I wish I'd like been taking notes. But um, the idea of the class-based versus race-based, and also you mentioned um, morality, and oh, I know what you made me think. You made me think that this is the way that could be pitched to libertarians too. Mm. Yes, um, not just anti-capitalists, because when you were saying a, a question of liberty, you know, it could be like, oh, well, why is the government, you know, tricking me? I mean, I sound like a, a tea party or something, but it's true. <laughs> we need to reach people where they're at, as we keep saying. So I do think that it's important to. To make this, and that is one of you know Bernie's strengths, right? Was to make it. He, he made his messaging was made things so accessible, so it didn't really matter what your politics were. Of course, he is a leftist, but he was able to reach people who didn't necessarily identify that way, which I think is a big, uh, a major strength, and something that we on the left have to do more of. Because one of the curses of, I mean, it's great in a way that like socialism has gotten cooler. There's a coolness factor, but it also means that I think sometimes we can forget that. There'll have to be a broad, comprehensive movement that um, is appealing to people regardless of how they identify. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's I like the idea of trying to do more work around the negative freedoms versus positive freedoms. Yeah. There is this way that, you know, we, you know, every the right talks about a freedom to hold, you know, buy any gun at any time and the freedom to, you know, kick someone off your lawn or whatever. And the left, I think, doesn't talk enough about freedom from hunger and freedom from housing insecurity mm-hmm. and freedom to be able to change jobs without worried about being worried about losing health care and freedom from serious debt and all these kinds of things. And there is a cohort of the left who is very hesitant to adopt any of the language that is used by the right. And, you know, we recently had an episode on patriotism and whether or not the left should try to reclaim something there. And many, many people disagreed. You know, Jackson Hinkle talked about it on his show. Many people were upset. You know, this is this, this idea of should we reclaim the American flag? Yeah. All these kinds of things, you know. And my view is that you can choose whatever you genuinely value as an American, and that then is an American value. Mm. And if you think that it's an American value for us to support each other and help each other in time of need, then say, I'm a patriot who believes as an American, we should support each other and help each other in a time of need. And I'm proud as an American for us to have the social safety net that we do have, and we should make it stronger. I'm proud as an American to have enabled Europe to have the social safety net that it has by rebuilding with the Marshall Plan (laughs) so that they can have universal health care. If you are, you know, uh, you know, if you, I mean, like people are going to have mixed feelings about this, but you can lean into what's, you know, align with some, some Zionists and say, I, I, I am very glad that every Israeli citizen has universal health care and I want us to have the same opportunities that they have as well. You know, you don't have to, everything doesn't have to be the same level of antagonism all Mm -hmm. across the board. And I personally think that it's a real loss opportunity. And unfortunately the compromises that liberals make 
is to just fully cotton on to the worst parts of the right and the worst language of the right and, and genuinely throw people under the bus right. when the right is very adept at appropriating lefty slang mm-hmm. on the re- on the most recent episode we had a fox news host explaining that we shouldn't cancel student debt because the most people who would benefit most Black. are white like <laughs> yeah. no a fox no, news no, person is arguing white, yeah. yeah he's arguing don't do student debt cancellation because mostly white people will benefit and i'm like I don't even understand. Who is he even talking to right now? Like, isn't that a good thing to you? Yeah, that's what happens in the void. And there's a disconnect between actually using effective messaging when all you did was focus on the racial part. When someone presents, which is true, because as you stated, you're the majority of the population, you leave yourself open to the attack. Like, I don't, sometimes it's like, are these people intentional? Are they being like nefarious in the fact that they're doing things like this? I try not to be conspiratorial because that's just not my thing. But like, I totally agree with you. And I think, <laughs> I feel like the part of what you're saying to me is like, assuming the left doesn't use language that aligns with the American identity. Granted, mm. you know, some people argue that, do we really have a unifying identity since we're not racially ambiguous, I mean, racially, you know, homogenous, but like, are there characteristics that we have that unite us that we could then speak to? And I feel like the right is very willing, like you said, to jump in the conversation, capture it, and reframe it in purposes that align with their agenda and that the left is so hesitant, maybe it's maybe our more humanistic and globalist approach or worldview morally. But I think if we choose to do that, we will consistently lose. We have to be able to, it doesn't mean you sell out and we don't care about the people in Syria or you know other parts of the world, but mm-hmm. framing everything like, hey, this is the reason this is so important for America, the reason this is a part of our identity, our freedom, our patriotism, et cetera, is this. Because once you get people on your side and recognize, hey, I align with them on this messaging, then yeah. you can start introducing the things later down the road. But if you never even get on the field, mm-hmm. no game can be pl- can be won. So, yeah, this the Communist Party USA did that. I mean, they they really did kind of embrace and co-opt patriotism. You know, when they fought in the Spanish Civil War, their brigade's name was the Abraham Lincoln Brigades. Mm. Mm-hmm. in the Americas, which, you know, praise the founding of the United States. So there's definitely different ways that you can play it. Yeah, because mm-hmm. it's like, what do you deserve as an American? And I think so mm-hmm. many people say the freedom, we deserve the right to own a gun. Well, you know what, you deserve the right to have a, an education. You mm-hmm. have the, deserve the right to do these things. And I think once we can get more people on board, I totally agree with you. So I thank you all so much for entertaining my thoughts today, because that was in my head since I heard the episode. Thank you so much, Jay. You're so insightful. We really do have to do a whole. We're gonna. Someone said you need to have him on as a guest and do a whole episode. And I'm increasingly thinking that's the case. Yeah. I'd be more than honored for that. So thank you so much. I love you both. Oh, Bree, where where's the best way to send? You oh, ideas? so here's what I'm gonna do. I confess. Look, I'm just gonna be honest. I got you a little overwhelmed at a certain point, and I stopped checking the inbox on the Patreon. Like, I'm sorry. I'm not saying I did it permanently. But sometimes I'll be like, oh, I'm going to check it in the spare moment. And then I <laughs> don't have a spare I moment. get like it. There's something about patron feedback that's different because I feel like I'm being paid to invest in it. Like mm. I have to emotionally invest in it because somebody paid five dollars to say this to me. 
and and so I feel like I can't just ignore it or dismiss it as like a troll or something. And so then if it's mean, <laughs> my feelings get hurt and I feel like I don't, I'm not allowed to divest emotionally from it. So then sometimes I just don't check in. <laughs> See, but that's a me problem. They got to pay $10. LOL. <laughs> Look, the, the point is that sometimes really good stuff and good suggestions and stuff are coming through. So I'm going to get back on One of my resolutions is going to be to catch up with the patron inbox. My sincerest apologies. I got to get on a schedule so I don't have to do like hours of it at once. But for for this show, I'm going to say, go ahead and put it in the comments of the video of the episode that we talked about. And I'm going to see if we can get to a situation where if not my producer, then an additional staffer that I hope to be able to hire next year will be able to go through and pull all of the suggestions from stuff and help me with ideas for upcoming episodes. So it's a little bit less of a one woman job. Perfect. Sounds good. Well, thank you all both so much. And I hope you both have a very happy, happy new year. Thank you, Day. Yeah. Yeah, you too. Thank all you. right, Katie, it's 736. I, I, have a, I have a dinner, not a COVID unsafe dinner, just one person cooking me dinner. And I feel guilty that I am delaying going oh, over there. Should I do a stream tonight? I think people would probably enjoy it. I mean, I think most yeah. people can't really go anywhere or do anything, so... Would you come on for any part of it? Katie, I'm just telling you that I have to get off of this so that I can go and spend some time with my partner. You would bless it, right? Sorry? Oh, your schedule. You would bless it. I would bless it. I I would bless it. A part of me wanted wanted this to be a stream because I got my little New Year's hat here. I've got a little blowy thing, but I just went ahead and took a picture of myself on Instagram using my props. Right. Because there is something, I think, freeing and intimate about the speech only zone here. Yeah, I know. I'm feeling it right now as I'm on the phone with you, remembering this from my podcast days pre-video. Katie, is is this your first call-in experience or have you it, used it before? First time, uh, long time listener, first time caller. But yeah, I've listened to you and that. Uh, well, I, I feel like maybe you should get on here. People should follow Katie if you don't I'm, already. In case yeah. she tries to do a show, you'll get an alert. Follow her on, on call-in. On call- well, I'm not on call-in yet. No, no, but you have this avatar. People can follow individuals. Oh, like follow any of us can follow any of us. Yeah. And follow me. Can I, can I plug my stuff? Of course, please. Thank you. So especially because I may do a thing tonight, youtube.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's youtube.com slash the Katie Helper Show and patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. And on Twitter, I'm Katie Helps. It's letter K, letter T, H-A-L-P-S. And also, I did a really, I'm not bragging about me. The guests were amazing. It was a really good episode that we did Tuesday night that you can listen to as a podcast or watch the video of with um, Dr. Ani Blackstock and Dr. Justin. Mm. And it was about the, what's really behind the CDC's newest guidelines. And mm-hmm. it was fascinating, I think, to talk to two doctors, one a PhD epidemiologist and one an MD. Yeah, I saw that, but I haven't had a chance to watch it. So that's a good reminder for me as well. And please like follow her channel and like the videos. It really helps. Katie and I both really should be at 100,000 subscribers on YouTube. It's really embarrassing that we aren't. It's a Shonda. It's a a Shonda. So if you can help us in that regard, if all 40 of you (laughs) who aren't already subscribed or the thousands who will listen to it after I post it, go over and subscribe to both of their shows and just indiscriminately like videos. Just like it. It's free. It's free to like it. Subscribe and then you hit the bell thing. Yeah. And if you hit the notification bell, yeah, you'll get alerts uh, of new videos dropping, which I do kind of sporadically and I don't do live shows with the regularity that Katie does. So 
I tend to do it without a lot of notice. So if you want to know, if you want to be able to participate in the chat and ask questions and stuff, please do hit the notification bell. As always, you can subscribe to Bad Faith Podcast at patreon.com slash badfaithpodcast. I've made a lot of references to this amazing interview that I just did earlier today with Teslin Figaro, who's a commentator on the Black News Channel and also on Fox News frequently, where she delivers body blows, the likes of which I rarely have seen. I've said it before in private and I'll say it to you in public and I say it on the episode. If I ever ran for office, which I am not doing, I know who I want to be my comms woman and it is Tesla and Figaro. So um, I hope that you were able to catch that episode. And if you are not financially in a place where you are able to be a subscriber, that's fine. We always put juicy clips up over at Bad Faith YouTube. So you'll be able to catch some of it there. Thank you all. Thank you, Katie, for hopping on this stream with me. Thank you for having me. Before you came on, I asked people, you know, do you mind if I have the same repeat guests all the time because they're my friends and I like them and they're my favorite people to talk pop culture with? And I think the the answer was no. Have people on as much as possible. So oh. I now feel free to have you on as much as I want on Bad Faith Podcast. Yes. <laughs> so hopefully we can chat soon about some fun stuff that's been going on and have some levity. Yes, definitely. To and all of you. Oh, go ahead, Katie. Oh no! So Bree was great on my my show a couple episodes ago. We talked about the the um, Kamala Charlemagne thing. Mm-hmm. Was, yeah. yeah, it's one of my one of my favorite topics. Um, yeah. To all of you, thank you for joining this New Year's Eve. I hope you're all very safe, and I hope you're able to have some fun despite the constraints that we're under this year. You guys really make this pleasurable and make it feel really worthwhile and help me feel less isolated than I might otherwise in this moment. So I want to say that I appreciate you again. And as always, happy new year and keep the faith. Happy new year. Jackpot.